Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest in COVID-19 antibody testing. To address this are IDSA antibody testing guidelines authors and IDSA board members, Dr. Kim Hansen with the University of Utah and Dr. Angela Caliendo with Brown University. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Hansen, let's start with you. What do we know about the timing of antibody development and how that impacts the clinical utility of antibody testing for SARS-CoV-2? For most infectious diseases, we see IgM antibodies kind of rise first and become detectable in the blood first uh, after an individual is exposed to an infection and develops symptoms. So generally, we'd be testing for IgM in that first one to two weeks post-symptom onset. And then IgG antibodies rise later, um, maybe around two to four weeks after infection um, in many cases. And IgG remains positive for longer. It can be detectable in blood for months to even years uh, or longer after uh, exposure and infection. Um, But what we found in our research and the studies that informed the guidelines was that SARS-CoV-2 seems to be a little bit different in that it's more common for IgM and IgG to rise and become detectable together almost simultaneously, and it happens a bit later than with other infectious diseases, such that it was unusual for IgM to be detectable without IgG. So, for example, when we analyzed the data uh, around antibody test performance by class and divided it up into the sensitivity of testing in the first week after uh, onset of symptoms, second week, third week, fourth week, and fifth week, we found that the pooled sensitivity for antibodies in the first one and two weeks uh, post-symptom onset was pretty low. So, for example, the pooled estimate for sensitivity of IgM in week one was 33%, and for IgG was 23%. And then if you looked at week two, it got a bit better. IgM went up to 73% sensitive, and IgG was 68% sensitive, but still not great. And it was important to note that the confidence intervals around those sensitivity estimates overlapped. So there was no statistical difference in sensitivity between IgM and IgG in that first one or two weeks. So I think the message for clinicians is if you test a patient with signs and symptoms that are compatible with COVID-19 in the first one or two weeks after symptom onset and you get a negative result, you really cannot rule out the possibility that the patient actually has COVID-19. It looked like the sweet spot for antibody testing was actually in the third or fourth week uh, after symptom onset. And if you looked at sensitivity there, IgG and total antibodies perform best. So the best sensitivity we saw for IgG antibody was in week three, was 95%. And then total antibodies, 98% sensitive um, was the best uh, marker for that around four weeks. Now I'll say we don't know exactly what total antibody is. Um, presumably, it's a mishmash of all antibody classes. So it could be IgM, IgG, potentially IgA. And IgG and total antibodies performed kind of best in that three to four week time frame. 
We found little data on IgA and really don't know much about the kinetics of IgA, so didn't recommend using IgA testing um, specifically until we really understand more about its test characteristics. And I'll also say there's pretty limited data beyond five weeks after symptom onset. So we know the test performed best in that three to four week time frame. If you test earlier, a positive result could be useful, but don't forget that a negative result does not rule it out. The decrease in sensitivity of IgM at four or five weeks was, was notable. And so it really, the sensitivity drops off quite, quite quickly for IgM. Thank you, doctors, for your insight on that question. Moving on now, Dr. Caliendo, the tests that are available have different performance characteristics. What factors impact test performance? For example, timing, type, immunoglobulin, platform, et cetera. I would build on what Kim just said. Clearly, timing is important. If you're going to minimize the number of false negative results, you don't want to test um, too early. Um, and as I just mentioned, you don't want to test with IgM too late, you'll lose sensitivity there. So timing, Kim did a great job of explaining the importance of timing. I think the type of immunoglobulin also is important. We don't understand as much about IgA, but we didn't recommend it primarily because of specificity issues. And so if you look at the sensitivity compared to using IgM or IgG, that wasn't the problem. It was more of a problem of specificity. And we saw the same thing for the lateral flow devices that have a separate call out for IgM and IgG, where either one of them needs to be positive for a positive result. Those, again, lack specificity. And so that's a very important consideration when you look at the performance of these assays is to make sure that not only do you have a highly sensitive assay, but you also have a highly specific assay. The platform also is important. So there are three general platforms that we, of tests that we evaluated. So lateral flow devices, which you're probably most familiar with them with rapid antigen testing for influenza or RSV. They're single use plastic devices. You put a few drops of specimen on them and you have a result in 15 to 20 minutes. Well, for, for serology testing, these are done with either whole blood plasma or serum and they're convenient because they're fast. Then there are traditional ELISA assays and chemiluminescent immunoassays that are typically used in clinical laboratories on large automated instruments that are in almost every clinical lab in the United States. And what we found was the ELISA assays and the chemiluminescent assays overall as a group, if you group all of the individual tests of that type, are more reliable than the lateral flow. Lateral flow tests were more variable for any given test, and then even within the whole class of lateral flows. And the interesting thing about some of these lateral flow assays is if you looked at them from one study compared to another that used the exact same lateral flow test, in one study its performance might look good, in the other study its performance might not look good. Now some of that may also be depending on the timing of when they actually collected the specimen. Um, if they were too early after the onset of symptoms, 
you're going to see um, a lower sensitivity. But clearly, overall, lateral flow show more variability, and IgM assays show more variability than IgG or total antibody assays. Interestingly, one, one characteristic that didn't impact the performance of the test was the specific antigen that was detected. So whether it was a nucleocapsid or spike or a receptor binding domain, um, that we did not see evidence that that mattered if when you look at them as a, in a group. That doesn't mean that there aren't some um, tests that detect spike that are better performing than some tests that detect a nucleoprotein, but overall we could not find trends in that the antigen made um, a big difference in test performance. So there's a lot of different things that can impact the performance of the assay, and um, it, it really underscores why the, the laboratory and the clinicians using the laboratory really need to understand um, which tests they're using and, and what its general performance characteristics are. Thank you for those points, Dr. Colliendo. Dr. Hansen, back to you. Does detecting an antibody response mean that you were immune from reinfection? And how long do antibodies last? Yeah, I wish I knew the answer to both of those questions. <laughs> so I think the answer is we, we still don't know. It's important to point out that the tests that we evaluated as a part of our literature review detect um, what we call binding antibodies. So antibodies that r recognize a portion of the virus, the antigens that Angie just mentioned. Um, but they don't necessarily tell you um, if those antibodies are the so-called neutralizing antibodies. So neutralizing antibodies are able to bind to the virus and inhibit the virus's ability to go on and infect other cells. So we think it's the neutralizing antibodies that will be important um, in immunity. And the tests that we studied don't necessarily detect neutralizing antibodies. They probably do, but they don't differentiate neutralizing from binding. And so going forward, I think we do need to drill down more on how the results of commercially available antibody tests that detect binding antibodies potentially correlate with assays specifically looking at neutralizing antibodies and titers of neutralizing antibodies to get to the question um, of immunity. In terms of how long they last, um, Angie did mention in our review, we did see that IgM antibody does start to wane in that four to five week time period. I mean, this was a trend, um, but there's certainly a suggestion that that starts to go down. We know less about IgG and total antibody. You know, other studies, I think, have gone out to about three months, um, but we don't know much, much beyond three months. And so we're kind of in a holding pattern to see studies that are starting to come out now looking at detectable antibodies uh, after a documented infection kind of in the, you know, we're getting to the six-month time frame, and so it'll be important to see how long um, antibodies remain uh, detectable. Um, most, most patients, most symptomatic patients, actually do develop an antibody response as well as a neutralizing antibody response, but not all do. You know, this audience is well aware that antibodies don't tell the whole story about immunity. There are other parts of the immune system, specifically, you know, virus-specific T cells that probably also play a role in protection and uh, going forward in um, preventing uh, reinfection. One thing that we don't have yet, though, available is a standardized or comprehensive T cell assay that would really give us a sense uh, of, 
the number of T cells that develop in response to a SARS-CoV-2 infection, um, their function and how long they last. And I think developing those tests uh, can be more complicated than developing um, antibody tests. So they're available, you know, people use them in research, but we haven't deployed them yet in routine clinical practice, nor are there standardized um, neutralizing antibody tests that are widely available. Again, used in resource uh, research settings, potentially um, available through a reference laboratory, but not widely deployed um, in clinical practice yet. Uh, as for reinfection, I bet uh, the listeners have heard about it, it hit the news um, earlier this week, end of last week, potentially, a case report that was pretty well done out of Hong Kong that suggested that they had identified a case of reinfection uh, using metagenomic sequencing to compare a patient who had a symptomatic infection in March and the viral um, uh, genome detected in that patient then, and a reinfection several months later, showing that the virus at least looked to be two different viruses and suggestive of, of reinfection. Um, it was interesting to note in that case report that's not yet been published as far as I'm aware, that the reinfection, the patient was asymptomatic, and um, in the first infection, there was no documented IgM antibody response. But in the second infection, um, IgG did uh, develop. So it's not clear if this patient is an outlier, um, if this is common potentially, if you don't develop an antibody response after exposure, you're a setup for reinfection. You know, we don't know, but it, that one case does raise some interesting questions. I think we need to, to do more research to understand it, but it does suggest that a couple things. Um, there's hope for a vaccine, potentially, that could induce um, a more vigorous and um, robust immune response, potentially, than uh, a mild infection could be useful. And it's possible that patients who've had infection, or it's likely that patients that have had a documented SARS-CoV-2 infection should get vaccinated if and when we have uh, a safe and effective vaccine. So a lot of unanswered questions very active uh, area of research, and more prospective well-designed studies are certainly needed, I think, to answer those questions more definitively. Thank you for that thorough answer, Dr. Hansen. Dr. Caliendo, in what clinical scenarios are antibody detection useful in the diagnosis of COVID infection? So when we put the guidelines together, we identified two clinical situations where antibody could be used as a diagnostic test. And the first is one that I think many of us have seen, which is patients that present with a high clinical suspicion of COVID um, on the basis of their symptoms, um, their, their chest X-ray or CAT scan, their laboratory testing, everything is pointing towards COVID. Um, they'll have a NAT test and it's negative. They'll have a repeat NAT test that remains negative. And in that situation, antibody testing could be helpful. And what we recommended was using either an IgG test or a total antibody test at three to four weeks after the onset of symptoms. Now, that being said, if the patient presents and they're only 10 days or 14 days into their um, symptoms, it's still perfectly reasonable to do the antibody test just keep in mind what Kim said earlier, if the test is negative 
um, you should wait until they're four weeks out and then repeat it because the sensitivity isn't that great in the first two weeks after symptom onset. So this is, this is a, a good diagnostic use. The interesting question in that situation is, why was the NAT negative? And you know, there's a lot that influences the quality um, of the NAT testing. And one of them is the specimen type. And another is the assay itself, where they are in the disease course. And it may well be that you collected a good specimen, that you're running a good test, but the virus is no longer in your upper respiratory tract. Um, it's no longer in your nose. You're not going to get it from a nasal or a nasopharyngeal specimen and that it's deeper in your lungs and, and we're, not, um, we're not doing a lot of testing on deep specimens. So it's a, it's a scenario that I will say we saw consistently. Um, I wouldn't say often, but certainly um, frequently enough that we felt it was important to identify this as a diagnostic use. The other um, situation where it's used in diagnostics is um, for pediatric patients with multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Here we um, recommended in the guidelines that you do both nucleic acid testing and antibody testing. In fact, now serology is part of the definition of the syndrome. And the reason for this is, you know, children can present with the um, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, but not have had typical symptoms of COVID. They may have been asymptomatic completely and still present with the syn syndrome, or have atypical symptoms. And so I think both NAT and antibody testing are helpful in identifying um, children with this syndrome and trying to figure out exactly where COVID fits in the differential of other causes of this, um, this Kawasaki-like syndrome. But I would say far and away that the major use of these sero um, serologic assays is in um, looking at the population and asking the question, what percent of the population is infected? Who in our population has been infected? Who has not been infected? And how does that change over time? And so though we identified these diagnostic indications, I think the primary use is, is in doing surveillance on a population. Sticking with you, Dr. Caliendo, how does disease prevalence factor into antibody test utility? For example, importance of specificity, impact of prevalence on true positive versus false positive results. You know, when we think of, of tests for diagnostic purposes, you know, we think a lot about having a highly sensitive assay. In surveillance, um, when you're going to use these antibody tests for surveillance, you really need to think about a highly specific assay. And, you know, when we say highly specific, we're talking a specificity of 99.5% or greater. Um, and the reason for that is, is you want to lower the likelihood of getting false positive results. And it's important because if you're going to give the results back to an individual and, and there's a high likelihood of false positive results, you run the risk of giving that individual a sense that they're protected, that, oh, my antibody's positive, I'm protected, so I'm, I couldn't get infected again. And so two things, one, they may not have been infected and it may be a false positive result. And two, as Kim pointed out, even if you're infected, we don't know if you're actually protected from reinfection. And so if you look at the test overall, 
the best performing assays. What we, what we see is a sensitivity of about 95% and a specificity of about 99%. So that sounds good, right? A specificity of 99%. Um, we, we would like many of our tests to have a specificity that high. But it turns out prevalence is only of infection in the population is only 1%. Then you're gonna have the same number of true positives as you have false positives. Or that 50% of your positive results are false positive tests. Now, if you say the prevalence is 10%, which is you know what you would find in a in a hot spot, of your positive results, 90% of them are going to be true positive results. And your false positive rate is down to 10% of your positive results. So big difference. And then if you get into a scenario where it's 40% of, of the population is positive. And that would be what you would think about if you're testing people in the hospital that were admitted with pneumonia that looked like they had COVID, but their NAT testing was negative and you were using the serology test for diagnostic, then only 2% of your positive results are gonna be false positive. So the vast majority of your positive results are going to be true positive results when your prevalence is that high. So even though the test has the same specificity, the prevalence in the population really impacts the number of, of your positive results that are actually due to false positive, um, that are false positive results. And so this is important. And so when we talk about a test with a, a lower specificity, we're talking about 98, 97%. Um, that doesn't sound that bad, but in fact, once you get down to a specificity of 97%, you have a, a substantial increase in your false positivity rate. And so this is why we really try to hammer home the whole concept of using a highly specific assay when you're doing zero um, prevalence studies. Because if you don't, the prevalence in the population is gonna be falsely elevated. So if you're in, in an area where the prevalence is only a, a, a percent or less, it's gonna look worse, substantially worse, if you use a test with a low specificity. Excellent points, doctor, thank you. Dr. Hansen, Dr. Caliendo just discussed specificity. Are there any concerns about antibody testing results based on cross-reactivity from other coronavirus antibodies? And do we know whether they might confer any protection for SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, that, that is a really um, important question that test developers really need to assess um, as a part of the validation of serologic testing is to make sure that what they think is a SARS-CoV-2 specific antibody does not detect um, uh, it pr prior infection or infection uh, with other seasonal coronaviruses. And one way to get at that and what uh, developers and clinical labs have done is to go back to biobanks or repositories of sera that's been saved from patients with other infections, uh, ideally other respiratory viral infections, that was collected uh, before SARS-CoV-2 was known to be circulating. So you could ask the question, um, is there any non-specificity or could there be some cross-reactivity um, with uh, antibodies across the spectrum of uh, coronaviruses. Another question people have asked is, well, seasonal coronaviruses are, are very common, um, and if there is some cross-reactivity potentially, 
could prior infection with a seasonal coronavirus give you some protection against SARS-CoV-2? And so far, I think there's no evidence um, to show that. It seems pretty unlikely uh, that that would be the case because we know seasonal coronaviruses are so common and the extent of uh, the epidemic really suggests there's probably no cross protection. And to circle back on assay development, um, well-vetted assays um, have been shown not to cross-react with prior seasonal coronavirus um, infection. At this time, I'd like to open up the floor for any final thoughts. Dr. Hansen, we'll stick with you. Part of the guideline development, um, we did highlight areas that we feel um, require, uh, you know, additional rigorous research. And so maybe I'll just touch on that a bit and reemphasize some of the things that we've already said. Um, certainly, we need prospective studies of antibody response, both, you know, binding antibody and neutralizing antibody um, that go for longer periods of time beyond our three-month mark. But I can't emphasize enough how important it is in study design to really not only carefully characterize uh, the timing of testing relative to symptom onset, but also the severity of disease. And so coming up with standardized criteria to characterize how severe someone's COVID-19 illness is will really, I think, help us in the long run understand antibody response and the, how robust the antibody response is. Um, we need studies in children in immunocompromised patients. We don't know much about them at all. And then finally, this is one thing that Angie touched on, and that is how difficult these studies are in the absence of a good or absolute reference standard. So for the guidelines, we looked at studies that defined true COVID infection by having a positive uh, nucleic acid amplification test result. Um, but as Angie said, the, the NAT tests um, are not perfect. And so in the studies, some patients with a negative NAT, but a positive antibody and consistent signs or symptoms could have been mischaracterized as false positive. So we need to put our thinking hats on and think about, you know, what is an ideal reference standard for comparison? Should it be seroconversion? So going from no antibodies detected to detected? Well, there are issues there. Um, if the detected is a false positive antibody, um, one additional thought would be to use neutralizing antibodies. So studies that look both at neutralizing and binding antibodies, but it, it requires attention going forward. And it, I think it is worth emphasizing that using the molecular testing as the reference standard uh, is not perfect. Dr. Kalienda, the last word is yours. I think this field is moving at a very rapid pace and that it is important for all of us to stay as up to date as we possibly can so that we're really have as best understanding of what's going on with this virus as possible. And it's overwhelming at times, um, just how much new information comes out on a weekly basis. And I, I applaud really IDSA for putting the guidelines out and then keeping them up to date and as living documents, because this there's still a lot for us to learn. We're doing our best to presented out there in a, in a really con consolidated manner where we can all digest it and keep ourselves up to date. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Caliendo and Hansen for their time, participation, and expertise. 
For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.